Welcome to a special bonus episode of the Marvelous Madams podcast. We're your hosts, Madam Chris. And I'm Madam Amy. Today we are joined by Christina Valcarce, one of the team members behind the Save Daredevil campaign. Thank you so much for joining us today, Christina. It is my pleasure to be here. And I just want to give a quick shout out to Magan. I hope I'm saying your name right. He is the fabulous listener who first sent me a link to the Marvelous Madams podcast. So thank you so much. Yeah. And Magan, you've been a huge supporter of ours too. We love you. We love you. Yes, we do. Thank you. So Christina, why don't you explain exactly what the Save Daredevil campaign is for anybody who's not Uh, familiar with it and how you guys got started with it. Sure. We actually got started as Renew Daredevil. This was back in, I want to say, early November 2018. When we saw that Iron Fist got canceled, we saw that Luke Cage got canceled. Netflix gave them both the acts. We hadn't heard about a renewal for Daredevil. And at that point in time, we were starting to get a little nervous, wondering if Netflix was just going to unilaterally cancel all of their Marvel shows. That's what they wound up doing, but we didn't know that at the time. So one of our members actually invited a whole bunch of us into a Twitter DM. She basically looked for people who were every day nagging Netflix, asking for a renewal. And she said, why don't we organize and get coordinated and make this a campaign? So we started out as Renew Daredevil. And we ironically were planning a huge tweet fest for November 30th, 2018. Of course, what happened was Netflix canceled Daredevil on November 29th, 2018. So we were quite upset. We were uh, pretty devastated for a while, but pretty quickly we pivoted into Save Daredevil. And the goal of the campaign changed. We knew that Netflix was dead. There was no way they were going to bring the show back. So we were looking into asking Marvel to bring back the show on another platform. And to us, it made the most sense to ask for Hulu because Hulu shows mature rated TV shows. They have originals that are TVMA. Disney Plus does not, at least not in the United States. Uh, We know that Hulu is not international right now, but we've also noticed that in other parts of the world where Hulu is not available, Hulu shows are available through other means. For example, I think it's in Indonesia. They're getting Hellstrom on Disney+. Plus. So there are other ways for people around the world to watch Hulu shows, even if Hulu is not necessarily available there. So that's why we decided to target Hulu for that. And as we were doing research into this campaign, we found out through the trade papers, through Variety, Hollywood Reporter, Deadline, they reported that there was a built-in moratorium in the contracts between Netflix and Marvel. What this moratorium meant is that for two years after Netflix canceled a show, Marvel was not allowed to use those characters in TV or in a movie. They had to wait. It was a cooling off period. So... The good news is the rights returned to Marvel this past November 29th. On November 29th, 2020, Marvel has the rights to Daredevil back. The question is, what are they going to do with those rights? And the Save Daredevil campaign is all about getting fans to say very loudly, very clearly, we don't want to reboot. We don't want to recast. We want to see this cast, this crew this creative team, and this TVMA rating return. That's what we're asking for. 
All right. So today we figured that since we have you, we would go deep on all the characters in season one. Not sure if we're going to be able to get through them all uh, because we don't have six hours to fully uh, dissect the psyches of the show. This is so cool. Yeah, I agree. I, I I looked at all the characters and said, okay, is this going to be an epic Lord of the Rings length <laughs> podcast? Because there's so much, there's, there's so many fabulous things to talk about here. I have no doubt that you'll also open our eyes to some things we haven't considered before. Oh my gosh, no pressure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're in a bit of our own bubble over here. So it's definitely good to have someone with an outside perspective. Yeah, because Amy and I are the Excellent. only, we're like the only people in our lives that we can talk to about this. And it's like, oh my gosh, all we do for months at a time. So my husband loves Marvel, but he's not a talky kind of guy. Got it. He likes to just watch the stuff. He doesn't like to overthink it, overanalyze things uh, too much the way I do. Yeah, and I'm just the geekiest one around me and everyone else is just like, yeah, whatever. I think my husband is, he's into these shows. He's watched them with me, but he's watched them once, you know, and he's like, okay, I think that's good enough. And I rewatch them obsessively. So, uh, yeah, he's definitely into it, but there's a different level. Yeah, you found your people yeah. here. Don't worry. I've seen the Avengers approximately oh 25 times. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> All right. So shall we start with Mr. Murdoch and work our way down? Oh, I feel like we could write a thesis on Mr. Murdoch, which is fantastic. You know, something that I love about this character, and it's in the comics too. It's not just this version of him, but I think they just get it right. They get it so right is so often when you see a superhero with a secret identity, that secret identity is a cover. It is just something they pretend at so that they could be the superhero. And with Matt, it's very clear from the very beginning that Matt Murdoch, attorney at law, is not a cover. That is his life. And it's every bit as important to him as putting on the black and going out and beating the crap out of bad guys. It's he is both of those people. And throughout the entire season, that's what we see him kind of struggling with is I am I am both of these people. How do I find that balance? And there's so much drama in that. And there's so much conflict in that. And on one hand, you want him to find the balance because you care about him. And, and on the other hand, you know, the drama is much better when he's trying to figure it out and struggling. Yeah, he is the two sides of the same coin. Absolutely. Yeah, I had never considered that. But it's an excellent point because you look at his counterpart, Batman, really, the other masked vigilante, and Bruce Wayne, it's all just a put on for him. The whole playboy with all the women on his arm. He doesn't really do much at Wayne Enterprises. It's all just, you know, like you said, a cover. But Matt, it's who he is. Yeah, it's just such a a, a deep part of his personality. And then the other thing that kind of sets him apart from other superheroes is his his faith. He has this deep conflict within himself because of his Catholic faith, because he was raised this way, because he has some serious questions about what God wants him to do. Yes. And that's something we've definitely debated a lot, not only on our show, but between the two of us, because we have, we come at this from our own different backgrounds. Yeah, I think he is definitely a character that viewers can 
take part of their lives and apply it to the way that they feel about this character. I think it's it can be very personal when you see the struggles he's going through. It's impossible not to start asking, okay, well, how do I feel about this? Where is my line? What's Would I make that same decision? That is a good point because it's safe to say that Daredevil is by far the most relatable superhero we have met. He really is. Yeah, I totally agree. And I mean, it's it's possible to say that when the Hawkeye series drops, he's going to be very relatable because, again, he's a guy. He He's not a super strong alien iron suit. He doesn't have any of those things. And so I'm kind of curious to see if I if I feel strongly about that character for the same reason. But so far, Matt is kind of the closest we have to just a guy who is fed up and had enough and has to do something. Yeah, true. And I love the way the... F- I love the way the flashbacks really give you a look at, really give you context of what New York, what that area was like culturally, you know, back in the late 80s, early 90s, when Matt was growing up, you know, that I related a lot to that personally. And it's one of my struggles with watching the show. I'm from Newark, New Jersey, from that similar area, raised in that ethnic working class Catholic background. So for me, I don't know what would be worse, being blinded in an accident or growing up in a Catholic orphanage. Right, <laughs> right. And let's just mix those two things together and see what happens. I'm I'm a native New Yorker. So, um, and my grandfather was born blind. He was blind his entire life. And uh, he did not have a dog. So I really loved that bit in season one one with the you should get a dog who doesn't you know love dogs it's like I don't want a dog Uh, so that was that was very personal for me I really laughed at that part yeah it's like you know what Foggy do you really want him to have anything that's going to attract women to him more (laughs) yeah if Foggy that's another thing I love about uh, season one is Foggy's eye rolls every time there's a Matt is interacting with a woman and it's going well it's like I they just cut to Foggy and Foggy's just like oh you've got to be kidding me I just love that I love him so much. And the chemistry they have is fantastic. Oh, my gosh. You really believe that these guys have been best friends since college. You just buy it completely. And I go back to, you know, we can we can jump around between the characters here, too. I go back to Eldon Henson when he was a mighty duck. Oh, yes. (laughs) I did not even realize that was the same person Mm -hmm. when I first watched completely did not did not connect for me. Well, you know why his hair his hair was really dark in the Mighty Ducks. Yeah, you know, you're right. That might be part of it. Is it he really didn't look like the same person. No, and you know, that's why it's usually the opposite with blondes. Like you start out light and your hair gets pro- progressively darker as you get older. So I'm wondering, is he dyeing his hair now or was he dyeing his hair then? I wonder. That's a good question. Let's get him on the line. <laughs> And, you know, we're talking talking about Foggy. Um, I just adore the fact that they did not make him the bumbling sidekick. Uh, he's funny. Yes. Genuine funny. He said he has some of the best lines in this season. But we also get to see him extremely upset, deeply hurt, very emotional. You see that he is a really good lawyer. He cares about his clients. And we also see how hurt and betrayed he feels when he finds out that Matt's been lying to him. So I, I, 
again, such a strong choice to say, okay, this is a real guy. He does not exist just to service Matt's story. He's got his own story and he's a real person. Yeah. And that is the strength of the show. Yeah. And he's got tremendous range. He does. He has really tremendous range. So, and for me, if you want someone to be funny, you have to show them not funny at some point to kind of give you that, that contrast. And I think they do a great job. Yeah. Foggy is the guy at the party that you want to sit with and hear his stories and have a real conversation with, but Matt's probably the guy you're going to want to take home. I think that's the difference, at least for me. <laughs> but how how funny is it that in this season, Foggy and Wilson Fisk get it on and Matt doesn't? Like, I find that just kind of hilarious that they, sh you know, they show Foggy waking up with the woman in his bed. They show Wilson Fisk waking up with the woman in his bed. Not so much Matt. And uh, I, I just find that so funny. Amy, didn't I tell you Christina was going to open our eyes? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I was just thinking about that. Especially because of, you know, uh, Foggy's constantly thinking that Matt's with the woman because he's always waking <laughs> up, you know, late and getting to the office late. And Foggy's always like, oh, it's a woman, it's a woman. It's like, no, Matt's really not doing well in that department at all. No. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Foggy thinks that Matt is into some serious kinky shit because he <laughs> always comes in wincing. That's he's true. always got the black eye and the cut over his his eyebrow yeah and you know that's something that yeah. amy and i have discussed is how good of a friend is foggy for not noticing how banged up matt is all the time i mean my first reaction would be fight club you know yeah yeah or or drinking problem <laughs> right drinking problem something beyond i'm just clumsy mm, no yeah the I'm just blind only gets you so far. It's like, dude, you've been blind since you were nine. I would hope that you would have figured some of this stuff out. <laughs> right. And, you know, it does. I think it, it comes down to ableism. Yeah, that might be a good point. That might be foggy just thinking, well, there's that makes perfect sense because he's blind. So he can't do things that that's a right. really good point. And Matt is constantly playing up those low expectations. Yeah, he kind of has to in order to keep his his whole secret life secret. It does kill me, though, that Claire Temple, she doesn't even get to have him once. Not once. <laughs> Not a once. And it's so interesting because um, I've said this a lot when people say, oh, what, what character do you think you're most like? And I wish I could be Karen Page, but I'm Claire Temple. I would be that person who would say, okay, I'm going to help you until this point, And then I'm out because this is weird and I cannot handle it. And I, I liked, I very much like that that was her choice in this season with, okay, I'm out. This is too much. It's just, I think it's a very human thing. I think it's something that someone, especially someone as practical as she is, she is a nurse. She's someone who's very grounded in reality and what is in front of her and problems she can solve. I can see her saying, all right, this is great. You're cute. Like seeing you with your shirt off, but I can't do this. <laughs> yeah, she, that is one of the other strengths of this show is the women are always at every turn, stronger than the men. It is so true. I mean, if you want to talk about uh, how strong Claire is, 
just the fact that she was able to withstand basically being tortured by the Russians and still come out of it and still help Matt. It wasn't until she was kind of staring at Matt's decisions and Matt's actions that she said, okay, I'm out. It wasn't being beat up by Russian thugs. It was, yeah, this guy is going down a dark path and I don't think I want to be there with him. Yeah, she bailed not because of her own safety, but for her, but for his safety. Yeah, and I would like to say that I'd be Claire Temple, but I think, let's face it, Amy, I am Lila Nowsley, yes? <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to ask you, who do you think you oh, are? But I would have been smart enough not to rub it in Fisk's face, and I would have had my ass on a plane to the Bahamas or somewhere else without an extradition treaty. Dude, if Fisk showed up even within the, in 10 feet of you, you'd be running the opposite end screaming bloody murder. <laughs> this is true. He didn't even need to speak. Yeah, Fisk really had him in a corner where I don't think he had a choice but to just fight back. At that point, it's like, I know you did it. I think he could have played it smarter. His ego got in the way. Yeah. Yeah. I think ego did flare up where he's like, I'm better than you. I know what you, I know what I'm doing. But man, I mean, what could he have done? He's looking at Fisk. Fisk knows. I, I, I don't think he could have denied trying to kill Vanessa. I think that was just, I don't think he would have gotten out of it that way. No, there was no turning back at that point. If I remember correctly, he volunteered the information that he tried killing Vanessa. Okay, now I'm trying to think. I believe he, he was, did. He was, he was caught. And he spoke about the money. About the money. He was caught on the money. Yes. And then he spoke about Gao and him planning this whole poisoning thing. And he then, even at that point, Fisk thought that they were trying to poison him. But he volunteered that Vanessa was the target all along. That's true. And I wonder if things would have gone differently if he had just said, yep, tried to kill you. Didn't work. I'm not sure it would have. Absolutely. Now see what Owsley should have done is he should have blamed the whole thing on Andy Dufresne, set him up and then faked his own death. <laughs> now he could have tried blaming the whole thing on Gal. Exactly. He could have gotten out of it. Yeah. I, I wasn't going to come to you until I was absolutely sure but I'm really thinking this was Gao. That might have bought him enough time, like you said, to get on a plane to somewhere where there's no extradition. Yeah, that tiny little woman terrifies me as much as Fisk. Oh, she was fantastic. Yeah. I absolutely loved her in this season. I loved the mystery surrounding her. I loved the fact that there were subtle hints that she was connected to Kunlan, but they didn't just say it. Right. Yes. I think I'm going to be honest. I liked her in this season better than anywhere else she appears later. I think I like her, her character specifically in this season best. I think the appeal to her character is about her mystery. Exactly. Yeah, that's how I feel. As when they started explaining things, it was okay. But the, the mystery was really kept you kind of kept your eyes on her the whole time. Yeah, because I yeah. was convinced she had blades or something in those skirts. I was wondering if she was going to wind up being the crane mother. I know a lot of other people had that theory online and it turns out she wasn't, but there, you know, there was something about her, the way she just pushed Matt across the room, the way that 
all of her servants were blinded. Ooh, it was just creepy. And, you know, about that part about, um, you know, her punching Matt across the room. Obviously, this is an old woman. It is a testament to this show at how, at every turn, these fight sequences are amazing. No matter who's involved. They are so amazing. The actors themselves, the stunt people, the coordinators, you cannot top this show. I think my favorite thing about the action is that it never feels like, and here comes a fight scene. There is a story reason for absolutely every one of them. Mm -hmm. And you can't say that for every single superhero show that you see on TV. So I really appreciate that is everything furthers the story. Yeah. Everything is seamless. So if we're talking about strong women in the show, should we talk about Karen? Absolutely. Absolutely. Karen. Oh, Karen is my spirit animal because I know I will never be her. <laughs> yeah, I feel the same way. It's like, I wish I could have this, this woman's cojones. I totally don't. I enjoyed the fact that, you know, they flirted at the idea of her and Foggy dating in this season. They flirted with the fact that she was attracted to Matt in this season, but she was no one's girlfriend. She was no one's love interest. She had her own story and she had her own agency. She did stuff that the title character did not even know about. I like that. I like the fact that she was just as strong as the other characters in the series. And she just never felt like the girl. That was never yeah. who she was. She spearheads the whole thing. And at no point she was the damsel in distress where our hero had to come in and save her. This is true. I mean, there were some legit times where Matt did wind up saving her, like in the first episode. But that was a situation where anybody would have needed help at that point. There was a yes. there was a trained assassin trying to kill her. You know, that's totally cool. But I love the scene where those two goons are following her and Foggy shows up and hits one of them with the baseball bat. And then she turns around with the mace and maces the guy in the eyes and says, I can take care of myself. So <laughs> yeah, she, 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 she can. Was it good that Foggy showed up? Oh, yeah, totally. But she can take care of herself, as we see with yeah, James absolutely. Wesley. And, you know, I'm so glad that somebody else besides us uses the word goons because we've said it approximately 173 times on our show. <laughs> oh, dude, they're goons. I totally. think you say that. I do. I think you say that more than me. Yeah, but I think you say it now because I say it. You just picked it up. Probably, yeah. yeah. Does Foggy actually call them goons? He might, actually. That might be why I said it. Yeah, you're right. He might. But yeah, Karen's arc. And I've said this in other podcasts, but I think it, it bears repeating. I love the fact that when Matt and Foggy meet Karen for the first time in the police station, she looks like crap. And I don't know if you've seen Deborah Ann Wall elsewhere. She's Gorgeous. She's stunning. Drop dead she gorgeous. She's like five foot seven, blonde. Oh, she's she's beautiful. But in that scene, her eyes were rimmed red. Her skin was pale. Her hair was kind of bedraggled because, you know, she had just been arrested after being drugged. I love the fact that they weren't afraid to go there. There's mm -hmm. not some law that says that women have to look stunning all the time. Mm -hmm. She looked exactly like she should have looked. Yep. The makeup department between Karen and uh, Claire when the torture scene and Matt's bruises all the time. Phenomenal job. You can feel them when you look at them. You're like, oh, that hurts. Mm -hmm. 
Like every time Matt opened up that one big wound he got from Nobu, oh my God, I just cringed. Oh, yeah. Just I'm I'm shivering just thinking about it right now. They did a fantastic job. And of course, the actors as well, playing it up, Mm -hmm. playing up how painful that must be. Yeah, we had both seen uh, Deborah Ann Wall on True Blood. That was my introduction for her, like most people, I think. I actually saw her on True Blood after Daredevil. I was like, what else has she done? Okay. And I watched that. And I also watched her uh, D&D show, Relics and Rarities, which is fantastic. That's in my queue. I'm waiting to watch that. It's a lot of fun. My husband had said that that would be his dream is to have Deborah Ann Wall DM a game and he be playing it. Oh, awesome. Yeah, me too. I feel like some kind of fictional solidarity with her knowing she is also a nerd. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know, and and she said it. she always said it wasn't a comics nerd. It was a different type of nerd. But, you know, hey, that all counts. Yeah. More, more nerdy stuff, more nerdy people in our world, please. Yes. And more people being open about it and embracing it and saying, yes, this is what I love yeah. because it's amazing. Yeah. And we see with Karen, not only the courage she have, but also the initiative that she takes with both her life, the business. She just basically comes like a whirlwind into their lives. Granted, they went to her, but then she's like, you know what? I'm sticking around. Uh, I'm going to be your office manager. It was kind of Erin uh, Brockovich, you know? That's a really good point. She's that person who will ask for forgiveness later rather than ask them for permission. She just does stuff and says, oh, by the way, I I did this. Yeah. And that's something that's, it's consistent throughout every place we see her in future seasons. And when she shows up on other shows, that's very consistent, which I like. She just takes charge. Yeah. She's not afraid to take charge. Yeah, exactly. And now you had mentioned Wesley already. That was the moment. I had said it to myself a couple of times, but when she kills Wesley... That was the time I really sat up on my couch and said, all right, who the fuck is this woman? And that line (laughs) where she says, do you really think this is the first time I've ever shot anyone? Uh That was really powerful because you realize, no, she's not bluffing. Like that might be something you might say to try to scare someone off, but she's not. She has shot someone before. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I adored that. And yeah, that was a, a scene that was definitely a, a moment where I was extraordinarily tense and the last seconds of the first season ends were all the way through the first season and nobody knows about it. There were more people at that point who knew that Matt was daredevil than knew that she shot Wesley. That was like kind of crazy. And I love that they were brave enough to do that. Like, nope, she's not telling anybody. Very true. Well, a secret's only a secret if, you know, two people know and one of them's dead. And then, of course, that that was hanging over our heads because we kept thinking, what is Wilson Fisk going to do when he finds out? Because mm-hmm. we've seen what a monster he could be when it comes to people that he cares about. And we mm-hmm. saw that he had a really deep friendship with James Wesley. He loved that guy. He mm-hmm. really did. A- and having that kind of stress of when Fisk finds out about this, Karen's dead was just, it it just raises blood pressure. Yeah. And, you know, I had a lot of mixed feelings about Wesley as the season went on because 
in a lot of ways, he is such a reptile. Like that guy is leaving a slime trail wherever he goes. But then you see that side of him with Fisk, that he genuinely cares. This is his friend. This is the deepest relationship he has. Maybe the only. But at the same time, when Karen kills him, I just cheer because she, number one, she wins. But number two, she wins because a man underestimated her. Yes, a man put a loaded gun in front of her and he really thought she wasn't going to grab it. And that was such a, that was his downfall. Uh, but it was it was such a strong moment. And I mean, I was like, shoot him, Karen, shoot him, shoot him, <laughs> shoot him seven times. That was <laughs> that was where the shock came from. Like if she had shot him once, he had went down and she had gotten out of there. I'd have been like, woohoo. The fact that she shot him stared at him and then emptied the clip. That was where I said, whoa, this is somewhere different than I thought it was going to go. I did not think it was going to go there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because that told me this woman is very comfortable with a gun and she's been here before. Yep. She has been here before. She has shot someone before. She it went further than she had to do it. It, it had to be done and it had to be done completely. There could be absolutely zero way this man ever came after her again. I think maybe one or two shots would do, would be enough for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you got to pardon Amy. She also doesn't know. Amy doesn't know gun culture in America. <laughs> I wish I didn't. Yeah. But yeah, she, and, and it is an interesting choice they made with her character that, she has a concealed carry permit. Uh, she yes. she is a gun owner. She is a responsible gun owner. And you could argue that she kind of needed to be after everything that she went through. And got herself into. And got herself into legit. If she had made different choices, her life would have looked extremely different. But I kind of like the fact that she's a person who cannot look away. She just can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. True. And she has to take action. Yeah, she has to. She has to do something about this. Um, one of the lines that we have stolen a lot for Save Daredevil is when she says, I have to do something about this. Because she says it, she says it with such conviction. I have to do something about this. And her and Matt are exactly the same in that regard. They are. And there are so many times it takes them a while. I don't think they realize it in this season. It's fun to see that kind of unfold over the show when they start to realize that they are the same. I don't think they get it. I think he still sees her a little bit as the person he has to protect. I think she still sees him as the idealistic blind man who isn't willing to get his hands dirty. And it's so much fun because they're hiding that part from each other when that's the biggest thing they have in common. Mm -hmm. So something that is interesting Whenever there's any kind of list or ranking in any kind of geek-related article about the best comic book villains on screen, Wilson Fisk is always number one or number two. And I think part of that is because we get to spend so much time with him. That's true. And we get to know him. We really yeah. get to know him. And one of the things that... Mr. D'Onofrio, I have so much respect for him. One of the things that he did so well, and also something that the writers did extremely well, was they let you get into his world 
They get you feeling sorry for him. They get you feeling compassion for him. And then he does something monstrous. And it's like mm-hmm. they're poking you saying, huh, we got you to feel bad for him, right? Don't forget, he's a cold-blooded killer. Mm-hmm. That's the crux of Will's Confisk is both sides, the duality, just like Matt. Yeah, just like Matt. I remember um, Vincent D'Onofrio in a very early interview saying, Wilson Fisk is a monster and he is a child. And we get to see both of those sides. We get to see the hurt little boy. We get to see the tantrum. What happens when a toddler who is built like a Mack truck has a tantrum? Mm -hmm. And that's what's so terrifying is he can go from being very cold, very methodical, very, this is the plan, we're going to stick to it. And then he can just lose his mind and do things from an emotional place that actually might mess up his plan. But in the moment, he just can't even think about it. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like he's snapping just the way he snapped when he killed his father. It's like that moment replaying itself for him. Yes. And that, oh my gosh, the kid who played him as a child. Wow. Fantastic. Fantastic. I always kind of wonder what it's like to be the mother of an actor who as a child has to do some really screwed up things on screen. I don't know, like if 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 my daughter was like, "Hey, mom, I, I'm going to be in this show. I'm eight years old. I'm going to be in this show, and I'm going to kill someone." I'm like, "Oh, great!" Yeah, I don't know how I'd feel about that. I don't know if there's extensive therapy involved, uh, but but the kid was brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, both kids. The one playing Matt too. Oh yes, and um, I don't know if you guys watch Ozark, but he's fantastic on that. Oh, okay, didn't know that. He's really good and he's growing up. So a few episodes of it. Yeah, he's really good on that. Um, The kid playing Baby Fisk, that's what we had started calling him. Uh, Adorable boy. The only problem I had there, his performance, don't get me wrong, it's fine. But, you know, and you're a native New Yorker, you'll understand this. If you're going to have a little kid playing Vincent D'Onofrio, you know, as an adult, give me a little Paisan looking kid, not this blonde haired, blue eyed little boy. This is true, but to be fair, their last name is Fisk. So it's yes. like, uh, it, where did that come from? Yeah, but I think Vincent D'Onofrio is just one of the most underrated character actors out there. I have been following him since Full Metal Jacket. Okay. He is, he is just phenomenal. He doesn't, even even like roles that should be wackadoodle and you could say, ah, it doesn't really matter. Like that crazy role he played in Men in Black. Edgar. Oh, my God. That's fantastic. Yes. That could have been just a joke role. And it wasn't. It was creeptacular. He was so good <laughs> in it. Yeah. And I have seen personally every episode, all 10 years worth of him on uh, Law and Order Criminal Intent. Yes. Yes. He's just, I I think it's incapable of him to do something badly. I guess what it is, is he is incapable of not taking every role very seriously. And that Mm -hmm. just shows. And I think that's a real reason why Fisk is so terrifying, because you believe him. I feel like he's always been an intimidating presence as an actor. But what makes the difference for me with Fisk, even beyond the physicality, Man, he's terrifying bald. He is. He is. And it's interesting in this show, if you look at the casting, not all of the actors really physically resemble 
their comics counterparts. And sometimes I feel like, yeah, that doesn't matter as long as they can act. That's the most important thing. If they can in- inhabit the role, they don't have to look exactly like it. But Vincent D'Onofrio bald is 100% Kingpin, just mm-hmm. 100% Kingpin. Yeah. And, you know, Amy and I have talked about this on our show too. What helps is the physicality of it all. Charlie Cox is not a big guy. No. And when you have Vincent D'Onofrio, who is huge, that contrast just creates even more tension. Yeah. You get the the idea that he could snap Matt like a twig. Mm -hmm. He comes close. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It gets really close. And I think it was also a really bold choice to show us Wilson's sensitive side when he's with Vanessa. Oh, Amy's got a lot to say on that, don't you? <laughs> yes, that is something that I absolutely love. And it is rare for shows to show you the other side when it comes to your main antagonist. It's really true. I mean, how many villains, that seems like it's not the right word even for this role because he's such a fully fleshed out character. But how many times do you see villains and their love interest? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that to a budding love interest. Yes. From the beginning, from the, from when he very awkwardly asks her to dinner and how he almost doesn't, he almost just walks out Mm -hmm. and then he gets up his nerve and he asks her out. I mean, that is just amazing. And like you said, it's very childish. It's yes. He's like, he's like a middle schooler. Yeah. Well, he's the way he almost leaves and comes back. He's so emotionally stunted because his emotional development stopped the moment he killed his father. And he's been stuck in that age mentally ever since. Oh, my gosh. I've never thought of that. But you're absolutely right. He's still 12. Mm -hmm. He's still this raging 12-year-old with all of these messed up emotions. You know, and it's fun. I've, I've said this before. I am not a comics expert. I've read some. I haven't read a lot, but I have read some storylines with Vanessa in it. And at least in the stories that I read, she is markedly different than the Vanessa we meet in this show. In the arc that I read, Fisk had found Vanessa. They were married and she saw the goodness in him and was trying to bring out the goodness in him. And all of his criminal stuff he was doing on the sly because he didn't want her to find out. How interesting is it that this version of Vanessa sees the darkness and is fascinated by it and wants to see more of that brutality and isn't afraid of it and really is the person to get him out of a deep rut where he could have lost and put him on the path to almost winning. Oh, you're on Amy's side, aren't you? (laughs) I can hear it. Amy and I have gone a number of rounds about Fisk and Vanessa and how uh, healthy their relationship is. And that's why I'm so happy to speak to Christina today. (laughs) (laughs) It is it it is just fascinating to watch and it's dangerous and it's lovely. Here we go. You know, there's that old adage, there's someone out there for everyone. Well, there you go. Yeah. These two are soulmates. They're soulmates. There's no question. Yeah. They they clearly belong together because they absolutely understand and accept each other 100%. And just, that's kind of mind-blowing. Yeah. See, my asterisk is, well, you know what? Some people really shouldn't be accepted for who they are. (laughs) 
there is that. But I mean, have we ever seen Vanessa say, you know what, Wilson, you're going too far. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember. And I don't think we do. I don't no, think there's it, a single no. moment where she says you're, you've gone too far. She's like, okay, cool. How yeah. can I help? Exactly. Pointing him in the right direction. Yeah. Well, if you're going to be a criminal mastermind, I'm going to help you out with some of this stuff. Stop wearing your dad's cufflinks. Get out in front of the public. You know, that was all her idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're going to do something, you better do it right. Don't do it half-assed. See, it's about quality. Christina, were you a Frasier? Absolutely. Were you a Frasier fan in the nineties? Uh, not really a fan. I saw some. I did. I didn't. You know, watch it every single week. I saw it when I saw it. I liked it. Do you remember Niles' second wife, Mel? Oh my gosh, yes. That's Vanessa, but a dramatic version. Let me pick out your yeah, suits. I could see that. Let me fix your tie. Let's. You are this. She even says to Niles, little like five foot eight, David Hyde Pierce, you are a colossus of a man. But then you look at Fisk and it's like, well, that kind of fits. Yeah, he is a colossus of a man. (laughs) Vanessa feeds his ego in the subtlest of ways because there is genuine love behind it. It's it's so tough because there is such love, but there's also plenty of manipulation along with it. It's really interesting, though. It's you never get the feeling that Vanessa is like, I'm going to groom this man and I am going to use him as a ladder to up my social standing. You never see that. It it really does feel like I'm going to groom this man to be the best that he can be because I love him. It feels genuine. You're and right. I also have to Absolutely. say kudos on them for hiring an actress who is the appropriate age yes. to be involved with him. Yes. Because she's a knockout. She's gorgeous, but she's not in her 20s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say I I think they're about they're 10 years apart in real life. About. Yeah, it's like it's 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 believable. It's definitely believable. And my threshold is always is one of them old enough to have parented the other. And <laughs> as long as the answer is no, I'm cool. And it's also important for us to have someone who is not in their 20s because she has this self-confidence and she's boosting Fisk up. So we can't have this young kid doing this. It wouldn't be realistic. And she's almost as mysterious and intriguing as Madame Gao, because we don't know anything about this woman other than the fact she works in this museum. And part of me is like, give me a spin-off. Art gallery. Art gallery, right. Um, (laughs) Amy's the cultured one of the duo, as well as being the the techie. Um, (laughs) So, you know, that's all we get of her. We know as much about her as we know about Karen. And there's a part of me that as as much as I find Vanessa more evil than Fisk, there's part of me that's like, I want the spinoff series of how Vanessa got here because how is she still single? And why is she just an art gallery employer? Why isn't she running a, a, a country somewhere? I'd watch that. You know, that's. That's really interesting. The two characters that I felt that way about were James Wesley and Vanessa. How did they get here? Because mm-hmm. there's got to be a story. This is not a normal path for people to take. How did they get here? Yeah, because there's no like right hand henchman internship. He had to work his way up there somehow. How did they meet? Why does he believe in what he does so much? Mm-hmm. Because it doesn't it, it doesn't seem like just a job. He believes in this guy. He he adores him. He looks up to him. And again, not normal. No, there's definitely a long history there. There's a lot of gold to mine. 
if they ever wanted to do some kind of spinoff there. Yeah, as much as I love that James was killed, he had to be killed. I miss him. Yeah, I really enjoyed him as a character. Hey, a prequel. Yeah, could be. We got better call. Yeah. We got better call Saul, so you never know. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. You had mentioned other incarnations of Fisk in the comics. Have you seen uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse? Yes. They did it differently there where his family was dead. Yes, Vanessa and Richard, their son. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's so many ways they've gone with this. I think this one, though, is my favorite because we see the evolution. We see kind of the turning points. And, you know, I just recently discovered that the inspiration for Wilson Fisk was twofold for the writers. One was Al Capone and the other was James Moriarty. Huh. It makes sense, right? Because the turning point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see it. The turning point for him is the press conference. Prior to the press conference, he's in the shadows. He's James Moriarty. And then after the press conference, he comes out in the public and he's Capone. And what a fabulous scene watching Ben Urich write that article and having it completely become irrelevant as Fisk is giving that press conference. Ah, oh, I remember both my husband and I were just groaning. No. <laughs> it was I love Ben Such Urich. a powerful scene. Yeah. Ah. Oh. Fantastic. And then Matt ha Matt has his own little temper tantrum there, just throwing his computer across the room. That that was an expensive laptop, especially <laughs> if he had that that braille reader attached to it. Come on, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That cannot have been cheap. No, absolutely not. Yeah, I can't handle animals being harmed. Amy can't handle technology being harmed. <laughs> <laughs> but that brings up a good point. Ben Urich is also a fantastic layered character. Yes. The fact that we got to see his wife in the hospital, the conversations between him and Shirley Benson at the hospital about her care. I especially love his relationship with his boss and mm -hmm. how that relationship definitely informs Mitchell Ellison's relationship with Karen in future seasons. I mm -hmm. like that there's a, a through line there that Ben has ripples that goes beyond just his appearance in this season. Yeah. And the fact that Karen is alive in the first place is thanks to him. And at the end, he saved her. He did. He said I was alone. And it's sorry. Love you, Karen. It's Karen's fault. He's dead. It is. It uh, that mm, see that's that's the one big problem I have with Karen is she went a step too far with Ben. Yeah, uh, we were talking about earlier about how she just takes initiative. She took a huge risk taking yeah. him to go see Fisk's mother. That was an enormous risk. You can tell she didn't ask first because she knows that everyone would have said no. She did it didn't really get them anything they could use and it it killed Ben. So that was that was huge. Yeah, I mentioned in our podcast that she's recklessly brave. In this instance, her recklessness cost someone else their life. And I think that weighs on her. Oh yeah. Very very it much. It does. Yeah, and I love that they allow us to see the relationship 
between Ben and his wife. And two, just like with his boss, there's so much backstory there. There's so much you can envision. And the writing is so good. Their chemistry is so good that you can just see like 30 years worth of love between these two people. Now, I don't know. Have you guys seen Cloak and Dagger? No. No. Okay. There is a wonderful reference to Ben Urich in Cloak and Dagger that made me just almost sob. It's beautiful. I'm just going to put it out there. He might be the most noble character on the show. He definitely, his motives are all pure. He is thinking about the truth. He's thinking about his wife. At one point, he packs it up and says, I'm not doing this anymore because he's going to take care of his wife. Mm -hmm. He's definitely all about coming from a place of love and honesty. Yeah, and I think he's by far one of the most relatable human characters. He's just so overwhelmed and tired. He's exhausted. He's been doing this for so long. He still gets excited about things. He's still, mm -hmm. you know, Karen comes to him and he's very gruff, but then he goes and investigates it anyway because he still has that, that fire lit under him where he wants to find out the truth and find out what's going on. But he still worries deeply about the people around him. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it feels good to watch, especially right now. I just love that old trope in general of the crusty old newsman. Yes. And the young, eager person that he's mentor to. Yeah. Like it reminds me of just watching, getting all tingly, watching all the president's men. Yes. Yes, there's got to be that guy. And he's definitely that guy, but he's he's nuanced. We get to see him, like I said, his relationship with his wife adds so much layer to it. Mm -hmm. And he gets underestimated a lot too. He does. Fisk tells him that. He says, I thought that your days of being relevant were over and I was wrong and I apologize. One of my favorite moments with him is, again, because it says so much about Fisk as well, is when Fisk asks him about Wesley and realizes he didn't kill Wesley. And then he says, I, I didn't think so. I, I, I know that you're a man of character. It was just such a great moment where Fisk is like, no, I understand you didn't kill Wesley because you wouldn't do that. Yeah. He respects him. Mm -hmm. He does. He will choke While him. He, murders he respects him. him. Yeah. Yeah. He's murdering you respectfully. Yeah. You know. So there's a character that I don't know if you guys want to spend any time with, but I just have to bring it up. Can we talk about Stick for just a few minutes? Oh, Amy has plots I'm to out. say about Stick, don't I'm you? I'm out. <laughs> uh -uh. I'm out. <laughs> I love Stick, but I have to say uh, this season for me was near perfection. There was one thing that bothered me. And to this day, when I rewatch, I cry cringe at one moment, which I just don't like. If I could just get it off my chest. Absolutely. It's the scene where Stick asks Matt, do you have anyone you care about? And Matt says, yeah, two. I cringe every time because first of all, who counts their friends? Second of all, <laughs> who comes up with only two? And third of all, who says it out loud? <laughs> if you're looking and reflecting and realizing you only have two friends, do you say that out loud? And to this day, that line just bugs me so much. I just don't like it. Yeah, well, because it's also not true. He's got Claire, too. Yeah, he's he's got... P I know that we only ever see him, really, with a very handful of people, but you cannot tell me that those are the only people on Earth you care about. Yeah. And Brett Mahoney, too. Yeah. I mean, it's just... it's it's It just comes across as so awkward and weird. But it could be, in Matt's defense, 
he is saying only two because for stick, even two is too many. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. He's already been marked down for furniture and silk sheets. So, you know, he's got to tread carefully. Yeah. The fact that he cares for anyone at all is bad enough. Right. Right. Now, let me ask you, Christina, you've probably seen him in more things than I have, but did it take you a minute to realize that was Scott Glenn the first time you saw this? No, the second I saw it, I was like, that's Scott Glenn. Yeah, uh, <laughs> he's he's just fantastic. Well, you know, I've never seen Backdraft. I've never seen Hunt for Red October. For me, Scott Glenn has always been Jack Crawford. Silence of the Lambs is one of my favorite movies I've seen a million times. So quite yeah. the contrast. Huge contrast. Yeah. But at first I was like, Huge wait, contrast. I was like, Leonard Nimoy was on this, is on this when I first saw it back in 2013. <laughs> He does have a, uh, kind, a kind of a Nimoy-esque look. A little bit, yeah. Especially whenever you, you gray out someone's eyes and it it's it takes away something from their expression. So there's that too. Yeah. And he was fantastic on Castle Rock. I don't know if you watched that. I have not. That's on my list. He's excellent on it. I want to see that. Yeah. Stick is such a fantastic, crusty badass. And he's only in that one episode in this season. But through him, you learn so much about Matt, about why he has such abandonment issues, about why he's convinced that everyone is going to abandon him, about why he pushes people away. And then, of course, there's that wonderful moment at the end of the episode when you realize that Stick kept that ice cream wrapper bracelet. Mm-hmm. Go and go so you ahead. think you know who this guy is. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying a no, word. No, you're ready to blow. Mm-mm. Go ahead. Nope, nope. <laughs> nope. This will not be a stick as a dick episode. That was her he catchphrase. Totally is. Yeah, that was her catchphrase for our episode. And Matt says it. He says, I've learned a lot in the 20 years since you've been gone. He said, like what? And he says, you're a dick. Like, <laughs> that's... Yeah, I can't even imagine how Matt feels, the pull inside of him, because on one end... He owes Stick so much. And on the other, he fucked him up so royally. But And on the other hand, we don't know what Matt was told about his mother. I don't think we ever find out what was told to him about his mother. But his father's dead. He cannot get his father back. Stick left, but now Stick's back. And I think think that somewhere deep in his very, very damaged mind, he's thinking, well, I can't ever get my father back, but sticks back. Maybe I can get something back with him. Yeah, Matt's got a lot of pipe dreams. I think that's one of them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And but the realization at the end when he realizes that stick kept that bracelet, it's just a knife to the soul. Yeah. My heart broke for the little boy. Yes, the little the little boy who was abandoned yet again. You know, Stick too, he comes across as that overbearing critical mother that you just want to say, "Oh my god, enough already. When's it ever going to be good enough with the sheets and the furniture? This isn't how warriors live." It would have been funny if it wasn't so heartbreaking and infuriating. There she is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and still and still lying. 
I, pro- I promise not to kill anyone. Still lying. And Matt doesn't pick up on it. Mm-hmm. Because Matt is an idiot. <laughs> Matt, Matt is an idiot. He reminds me a lot of Thor in that moment of, are you ever going to learn? Yeah. Yeah. This person lies. This person always lies. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, that's the hope. The hope is just overriding. Yeah, because Matt is also still nine years old. His development stopped just as much as Fisk's. He is between him being blinded, him getting his abilities, and his father being killed. That all of that just kind of stopped. Yeah. And if as if that wasn't bad enough, poor kid had to find the body too. Oh, yes. I mean, how many oh, different so ways, hard. how many different ways could he be traumatized? Yeah. And yeah. Then, and then and Stick then, shows up and then Stick leaves him. Yeah. And it's like, oh, you know what? Super, super traumatized child. Let You know who should raise him? Nuns. Yes. That's going to help. Yeah. It's just a big shit sandwich. Yeah, it is. And it seems like it's like that until he meets Foggy. And I think Foggy becomes this bright spot in his world. And Foggy has a moment. Where he leaves, but he comes back pretty quickly. A little too quickly, I think. Yeah. For me, high point of the entire season is Foggy lifting Matt's mask. I just about had a stroke. It was fantastic. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It was just fantastic. <laughs> um, it's, it's so interesting to see how few people Matt actually reveals his identity to. Most people find out. He doesn't really tell many people. And we've seen on screen in so many superhero movies, the best friend finding out and being so excited, being like, that's awesome. You're a superhero. And I'm not saying it's always bad. I think sometimes it's adorable. I love that scene in Spider-Man Far From Home with, can I be the guy in the chair? I mean, that was adorable. (laughs) Um, But I loved Foggy being so hurt and so Mm -hmm. betrayed and so angry. And it wasn't necessarily about Matt, you're putting on a a suit and beating up bad guys. It was a, you lied to me. And Mm -hmm. that was just so believable and something we haven't seen on screen. Yeah, that's real. That's a real reaction. Yeah. And that's why I was almost a little disappointed. And Amy, you had mentioned this about the finale seeming a little rushed. I feel like Foggy comes around a little too quickly. It would have taken me a hell of a lot longer, if at all, to come back around. And I think part of it may be just, I kind of rolled my eyes a little bit and said, ugh, men. Because by the end, Foggy's realizing, my best friend's a superhero and this is cool as shit. I know you don't want to talk about future seasons that much, but we do later on see that foggy is okay with this to a point he still has issues about it he's still not crazy about it it's more of an i accept this i don't necessarily like it but i'm accepting it Mm. because i think the lawyer in him there's more lawyer in him than there is matt if that makes sense it outweighs a little bit more than it does in matt yeah, that whole thing about you listen to her heartbeat without her permission. 
you know, that was that that's such a telling line mm -hmm. to him, you know, forget about the fact that, yeah, his best friend can hear a heartbeat from across the room. It's that's unethical. You can't do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's invasive. And, you know, some of the best scenes of this season are those flashbacks we get to college. Oh, I love them so much. They're it's it's just so pure. I love the way they use the makeup department to work with both of them for making them younger. They give Eldon Henson this insane wig. It still looked real. It looked good. But this insane long wig. And Charlie Cox, shave three times a day and you'll be fine. Yeah. Switch your hair a little bit. Shave. Put yeah. these dorky glasses on. Good. We got it. <laughs> And I think they gave Foggy a bit of a beer belly. They kind of, he kind of reminded me of Thor. <laughs> he hadn't let himself go oh, quite that like much. Like Endgame Thor. I think Foggy was still, Foggy was still showering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a joke about season one for a long time. It's uh, lawyer by day, vigilante by night, no time to shave. He's got this <laughs> constant scruff that's never quite a full beard, but he's never clean shaven. I love it. I absolutely love it. In fact, there was this just one scene in, I forget which episode, it might have been the one we just covered, just one scene where it did- Episode seven. It did turn into a full beard just for one scene. And I was like, nope, uh-uh, nope, not allowed. Do something about that right away. Yeah, stubble only. If it were up to her and she was around, she would have gone running behind Matt with a <laughs> uh, razor. <laughs> it's true. But, uh, you know, those scenes back to college are also heartbreaking at the same time because Foggy's still very much the same kind of guy. Like, he's grown up. He's matured. Yeah. But Matt, oh, what a difference. How free he seemed. How much happier and lighter he seemed when they were young. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's that, there's that wonderful, what about that Greek girl line mm -hmm. that got everyone very excited? Yeah. That was, you know, before he was carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. Yes. And, you know, Amy and I have gone back and forth about that, too, because, yes, it's a noble thing that he does, but there's also a lot of arrogance in it. And he likes to pretend that he doesn't have a massive ego just like this, but he does. I think he does. He feels like he is the only person who can do this, period. I, and we see that from him time and time again. I'm the only person who can do this. It's up to me to save the city. I haven't stopped this guy. The police can't handle it. I have to do it. Yeah, even at Ben's funeral, he's pissed off at him failing to get Fisk. Yes, it's it happened because I haven't stopped what's happening in the city. Of course, he doesn't know it's totally Karen's fault. But <laughs> still, it's he he takes it on himself. Well, you know what I really think it comes down to? He couldn't save his dad. So now he's just trying to save everybody else. Yeah. And yeah, I think I mean, too. That's, that's such a good point. He he had less understanding when he was a kid, but he knows now of all the machinations that were involved in his father's murder. And there's probably a part of him that thinks if somebody like me had been around when I was a kid to take care of all this corruption and all this crime, my father would still be alive. So let me save somebody yeah. else's father tonight. Absolutely. He couldn't save Batlin Jack. And, you know, we got to talk about him for a minute. The casting of Jack Murdoch was fantastic. He's very good. And I wish we had seen more of him, but I get story-wise why we didn't. He's very good. He's got his own 
internal conflict about throwing the fights so that he can afford to feed his kid, but you definitely see him being such a strong role model for Matt. You always get back up, sit down and do your homework. He doesn't want him to fight. He wants him to use his head. Yeah, the classic do as I say, not as I do. Exactly. Don't turn out like me. You don't want to turn out like me. How do you think his father would have reacted if he saw Matt as Daredevil? I think he'd probably be furious. I do not Mm -hmm. think he'd approve. I think he'd want him to give it up and just be the lawyer. I agree. I think he would be thrilled that his son became a lawyer. Yeah, I think he'd be very proud of what he was doing as a lawyer and just devastated about Daredevil. Mm -hmm. Yep, I agree 100%. You know, I want to get back to Madam Gao for a minute. And this also has to do with some of the really difficult things that actors are required to do on this show. There is this long scene where her and Fisk are talking like at that pond on a bench. They're talking completely in Chinese. And I actually had to ask Amy, is D'Onofrio speaking Chinese well there? Like, I have no idea. Is he doing a good job? (laughs) Yeah, I love that scene. That's the whole choose or others will choose for you. And uh, I just love this kind of image of Madame Gao as almost an evil Yoda. How... (laughs) She's she's counseling him. He doesn't know her true intentions. He doesn't know yet that she is working with Leland secretly. And for some reason, which they don't really go into, she is the person that he works with that he wants to please the most. He respects her. He treats her with deference. I'm not even sure if he's a little bit afraid of her. I think so. But he definitely seems concerned. He seems concerned with what she thinks of him. It's important to him. Yeah, that's true. And the Yoda bitch, she is definitely as wrinkly as Yoda. She definitely is. And they they definitely play it up and they play up um, the kind of cold pallor to her skin because I've seen her in other things and she's not quite that wrinkly and she's definitely not that pale. So they definitely went for the let's just make her look old and evil. Yeah. Pale yeah. people get a bad rap. Yeah. That's yeah, not fair. It's Amy, true. I say Amy, Amy knows that I am a glass of milk. <laughs> <laughs> She's practically translucent. I am actually, yes. <laughs> I am. She's the only one that Fisk views as an equal, really. And I think that's why he so wants to impress her, because there's still that little boy inside of him who just, you know, comes from a low rent apartment in Hell's Kitchen, who grew up poor, who grew up getting bullied by the the other kids in the neighborhood, by his own father, who's never felt good enough for anything. And, you know, it's the mama's boy in him, too. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but he's wants to please that maternal figure. That's so true. I mean, we see the relationship with his mother. He dotes on her. He makes sure she has everything that she needs. 
Uh, he's hyper concerned with her safety. And he says he didn't kill his father to protect his mother. But of I think part of him definitely was. Of course. Absolutely. He absolutely did. No, that child did nothing wrong. And that's that's the part of me, too, that gets upset with Karen. Because Karen has such tunnel vision with him. She never stops to ask herself, what would make a 12-year-old kill his father? She just assumes he's a right. monster and never thinks about it. I mean, just, just for me, as somebody who's both a former teacher and a true crime nerd, if I hear about a 12-year-old murdering a parent, my first instinct is, how much abuse was there and what kind? Right, right. Kids do not just do this. Kids are not born killers. So what happened? There's got to be something we don't know about. From Karen's perspective, I think it's more about just demonizing him so that she can justify her means to her end. Yes. And I think also from Karen's perspective, there's a lot of fear. Yeah. That she's she's terrified this guy is going to kill her. And so for her to simply paint him as he's a monster, he's a monster, he's a monster, it's easier for her to deal with those fears. Yeah. And at that point, she had literally just killed Wesley just a couple of hours before. Yeah. 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 No, that line when Foggy says you can't just kill someone and call yourself a human being. And uh, (laughs) you see the look on her face. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think this is a good place to wrap up with talking about Fisk as a monster. When he's getting taken away in the prison transport, that monologue he has where he self-actualizes and he realizes, oh, I am the villain. I am a bad guy. You know what? From now on, I'm going to just lean into this. Yeah. Yeah, it starts there with that fantastic scene with the prodigal son, and then it culminates in the final fight with Matt when he's just screaming, going, this city doesn't deserve a new tomorrow. He's just completely, he's like, that's it. I've had it. I am done with this. Yeah, that was like Ra's al Ghul meets Bane in one (laughs) giant package. He just fully embraces Kingpin at that moment. Yeah. Yeah, as much as the first season was Daredevil's journey to becoming who he is, this season was also about Wilson Fisk becoming Kingpin. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. So, Christina, as somebody who knows this show backwards and forwards, what do you want to see in a potential Daredevil season four? Where do you want to see them take it if it happens? I always joke about this, that I have the first scene of that uh, first episode written in my mind. Um, I would love to see something like we had with the first episode of season two. And something I loved about that first episode is, like I said before, conflict is 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 so dramatic. When things are going really well, we don't want to see it because it's boring. But season two, that first episode showed us that things had been going really well. So they Mm -hmm. gave us that, hey, guys, things have been great in this last year. Now it's about to go to crap. And I would (laughs) love to see something like that. Like uh, you see Matt back in the red suit, cleaning up the streets, cut to Nelson Murdoch and Paige in court, getting Melvin Potter out of custody. 
I would love to see that. I would love to see them representing him and saying this man was coerced by Wilson Fisk and getting him out. Beyond that, I really don't have a laundry list. And this is why. Before season three came out, I had a list of things I needed to see in season three. These things absolutely had to happen. I was just building it up in my head that this is what I need to see happen. Right before that season dropped, I kind of had a little talk with myself. I was like, you know what? You have to let go of all of your expectations. Just enjoy the season. The season happened. It was, I believe, the most perfect season of television I've ever seen. And I did not get half of what I wanted to get. And it didn't matter. And so my expectation, what I want to see in season four is I want to see them get as many of those same writers back and let them tell their story because they have not let me down yet. That is very well said. And it's a great point. We've trusted them before. We got to just keep trusting them. Yeah. Except for that. Yeah, too. I absolve you. (laughs) Do you think you'd like to see Matt Murdock in the MCU? I would be really happy to see Charlie Cox as Matt Murdock in the MCU if it is also if in combination with his own series. I would be somewhat disappointed if the only Charlie Cox as Matt Murdock we ever see again is in a film or is as a guest star in someone else's film. If that's mm-hmm. the best we're going to get, I will sigh deeply and say, okay, it's better than nothing. But I think part of why this show was so great was we had that luxury of time. We lived with these characters for so long. For how many episodes did we get to know these characters? And we got to know them in a TVMA setting, which I think was really important for this character. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's my long drawn out answer is. Yes, conditionally. Yeah, I totally get it. I'm currently trying to let go of my expectations of seeing Matt Murdock defend Peter Parker in Spider-Man 3. So I get it. Yeah, I mean, if if Charlie Cox showed up and played that role in that film, I, oh yeah, that would be great. But that's not all I want to see. Yeah. Yeah, it wouldn't do justice to him. So the Save Daredevil campaign actually has a change.org petition. Can you tell our audience why it's important to sign it if they want to see the show return? Yes. Uh, First of all, if you have no time to do anything except go and sign that petition, please sign it. If you have one minute, go sign it and then go share it. It's important because we want to show Marvel how large this fan base is. We want to show Disney. We want to show Hulu. We want to show Kevin Feige. In the past, we have printed out that petition and physically mailed it to Kevin Feige. We want them to see just how many people are behind this. And people at Marvel are not dumb. They're extraordinarily smart people. And they know that if, I think as of we're recording, we have 370,000 signatures. And they know that if that many people took the time and go to sign it, there's probably millions more who feel the same way and either don't know about the petition or just haven't bothered signing it. So it's really important for us to kind of show, hey, we're not just 10 crazy people. There are a (laughs) lot of people who want to see this happen. Uh, Your team recently started a podcast called Talk Daredevil, and we can say it's really good. 
Where can our listeners find it? Well, first of all, thanks. Yeah, it's something we decided to do and we're having a blast with it. So it's almost like a bonus that people actually want to hear our what we have to say. <laughs> so you can find pretty much everything connected with Save Daredevil at our website, savedaredevil.com. The name of the podcast is Talk Daredevil. You can just search for it wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. But at savedaredevil.com, you will find links to all of our social media. You'll find a link to our YouTube. You'll find a link to the podcast, to the petition, to some really helpful social media tips that we have for how to maximize uh, how you talk about Daredevil on social media so that the right people hear it. So yeah, savedaredevil.com is where you want to go. Yeah, your website is one of the best one-stop shops I've ever seen. We have some fantastic people working on it. And I can say that and brag because I have hardly anything to do with it. Um, <laughs> people much more talented than me are taking care of that website. And it's really fantastic. And it's a huge job to keep it updated because things in the Marvel Disney world keep changing. And they do a really good job of keeping it as up to date as they can. Yeah. And it is very professional speaking as a web designer. Oh, thank you. I know they'll be really pleased to hear that. Christina said, thank you again for joining us. This was a lot of fun and we hope your team's effort pays off. And if they do, we'll all owe you big time. Thank you so much. And like I said, the team could not do this without the huge fandom behind us. Every single person who loves Daredevil and wants to sh see the show back, they are such a huge part of this campaign. So we're all in this together because Murdochs always get back up. <laughs> that is true. They certainly do. So everybody, tune in Monday for our regularly scheduled programming with our coverage of Daredevil Episode 8. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter or Instagram at Marvel Madams and visit our website, themarvelousmadams.com where infinity stones are a girl's best friend. <laughs> <laughs>